right. Well, good morning again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 13? If you're new with us, God bless you. Welcome. It's good to see you this morning. And uh, just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And uh, we have uh, entered into chap thir uh, chapter 13. When we did a few weeks ago, we said that as we uh, have entered into chapter 13, we have entered the final hours of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. The evening began in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem where Jesus and his disciples were celebrating the Feast of Passover together. Uh, after Judas left the room to carry out his betrayal of Christ, Jesus instituted communion with his remaining disciples and then proceeded to give them one final teaching before his death. Now, the purpose of this final teaching was to prepare them and encourage them for what lay ahead. In just a short time, he would be going to the cross. Three days later, he would rise from the dead. And 40 days after that, he would ascend back to his Father. When he ascended back to his Father in heaven, the work that Jesus had begun on the earth would now be turned over to his disciples. All of us, really. His church. And so he needed to prepare them. He needed to give them one final instruction, uh, teaching before the cross, uh, because if he didn't, they would be devastated. They would be destroyed. Um, if he just went to the cross the next day and never prepared them, never told them what was going to happen, which he did um, in this final discourse, an extremely important discourse that only John records. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, it runs from John... Gospel chapter 13 through 16, but really includes chapter 17, what many call Jesus' high priestly prayer, where he prayed to his Father in front of his disciples. And boy, do we learn a lot from uh, the Father or about the Father and the plan of God from that prayer. So I'm including that in with this teaching from chapters 13 through 16. Now, guys, as we come to chapter 13, our text this morning is verses 36 to 38. It says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, let me give you a composite from each of the four Gospels of this exchange between the Lord Jesus and Peter. I've pieced this together from all four Gospels. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Peter answered and, answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said to him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, Peter, spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. 
Fast forward seven or eight hours after Peter made this promise to Jesus. You can turn to this in Matthew 26. Seven or eight hours after Peter made this promise to Jesus, Jesus had been now arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. Matthew 26, verse 69. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you are also one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Have you ever made the Lord a promise? A promise that you fully intended with all of your heart to keep? Maybe you said to him, Lord, that's it. I'm going to quit smoking or drinking or taking drugs or watching pornography. I'm done. I want to start honoring you. And I'm going to stop doing these. I promise that. Or maybe you said, Lord, things are going to be different between us. I'm going to start getting up early so I can spend time with you in prayer before I start my day, before I go to work. Or, Lord, I'm going to stop watching so much TV and, and, and use some of that time to get in the Word more. That's a promise, Lord, I'm making for the new year. Or, maybe you purpose to start being more of a verbal and visible witness for the Lord at work or at school or some other place, only to have a prime opportunity presented somewhere you could have stood up for Jesus and, and, and you know, defended you know, his name, but you didn't say anything. You basically denied him by keeping silent. If you've ever promised the Lord things were going to be different, uh, you were going to make some changes, only to fail and feel, feel the guilt of failing the Lord, well, maybe you have a small idea of what Simon Peter felt that night, or actually the next day. Now, I believe, guys, that Peter was sincere. I believe that with all of his heart, Peter fully intended to keep that promise he made to the Lord. I mean, the spirit was willing, right? The flesh was weak. And that's the problem with making God promises. No matter how sincere or well-intentioned they might be, you're putting your confidence in your own strength when you make God a promise and not relying on his strength, right? As we have said before, let me say it again. You cannot use the flesh to defeat the flesh. That's what a New Year's resolution is. You're, you're promising yourself or God, uh, you're going to make some changes. You're going to do certain things. But in reality, 
You're promising God these things out of your own strength. You're trying to use your flesh to conquer your flesh. And that's a self-defeating proposition. Only the Spirit can give you the grace and strength to overcome your flesh. When I say your flesh, I mean your fallen sinful nature, right? That thing that dominated us all of our lives before we knew Christ, it still wants to dominate us now that we are Christians, which we're not to let it, right? Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Easier said than done at times, right? But we have to be conscious of this. Peter had good intentions. I, I firmly believe that he was very sincere. Jesus told all of his disciples that they would forsake him before the night was out, and yet Peter assured the Lord, oh Lord, surely you're mistaken. Now, whenever that's your position, <laughs> can I just say, no, no, you're, you're, you're dead in the water, okay? I mean, Jesus said before the night's out, you're all going to forsake me. And uh, I'll never forsake you, Lord. Maybe these guys will forsake you. After all, look at them. But Lord, I'm not, you know, I'm Rocky Johnson. Right? Cephas, Rock, son of John, Johnson. I'm Rocky Johnson. I'm never going to deny you. I'm never going to lay you down. And I believe he was very sincere. That his love and commitment for the Lord was greater than the other disciples. However, roughly eight hours after Peter made that promise, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and was put on trial by the Sanhedrin in the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. The thing that must have really humiliated Peter, must have really devastated him, was that after he made this sweeping promise that, Lord, I'm stronger than these guys. Uh, I love you more than they do. And I will never deny you. I will never forsake you. I'll die first. After having made the Lord that promise, putting all that confidence, Peter was a strong guy. Strong people tend to be self-confident people and proud. But I'm, I'm sure he didn't realize that because it was all for Jesus. But he was making the Lord promises, as we say, writing checks you couldn't cash. And what must have really humiliated him and devastated him was that the first two times that next day he denied the Lord was in front of two little servant girls. Big, tough fishermen. Lord, I'm stronger than everyone else here. I'm never going to deny you. And then two little servant girls. You're one of them. I don't even know what you're talking about. No, no, no you, you're, I've seen you with his other disciples. Oh, you're crazy. I don't know the guy. And then, of course, the third accusation, the soldiers standing there said, wait a minute, we detect the Galilean brogue accent. Surely you're a Galilean. Surely you're one of him and one of his disciples. And that's when we read how Peter began to curse and swear. Not profanity. He was calling down curses upon himself if he was lying and swearing with an oath that he didn't even know this Jesus. In Jewish culture, when a Jew called down curses upon themselves. It was their way of, uh, a legal way of uh, seeking to affirm their own innocence. The idea was, if you call down, if I'm lying, I call down curses upon myself, and if nothing happened to you, the idea was, well, you must be innocent. Okay? I don't know what they were waiting for. 
the guy was lying. What, you know, what, a meteor's going to hit him or a lightning bolt? Maybe they thought that. I don't know. But that was in Jewish culture. If you wanted to emphasize how much you were telling the truth, you would call curses down upon yourself, which Peter did. As Peter publicly denied the Lord, though, for the third time, immediately a rooster crowed again. John only says it crowed, but other Gospels, we know this was the second time uh, a rooster crowed right after Peter had denied the Lord for the third time. And that triggered in his, in his thinking the words of Jesus when Jesus said that night earlier, the night earlier or before in the upper room, before the rooster crows twice, Peter, you will, have, you will have denied me three times. At this point, at this point, Luke tells us something that no other gospel writer tells us. This is pivotal. Pivotal. From where Jesus was standing in Caiaphas' house, he had a line of sight to Peter, who was in the courtyard or some other place at this time. Jesus is standing in the house in front of the Sanhedrin, the high priest, Caiaphas, and the others. When Peter denied Jesus for the third time, Luke tells us Jesus, from where he was standing, turned and looked at Peter. Didn't say a word. Just looked at him. What kind of look do you think Jesus gave to Peter? We're not told. We're left to speculate, right? Was it a look of anger? You know, a lot of Christians think that when they fail, God is angry with them. A lot of Christians do. And maybe it stems from having an earthly father who was hard on them. A father who uh, they could never please. Who never acknowledged their accomplishments, only their failures. Never told them they did good in anything. Only condemned them for messing up and so now when they fail as a christian they imagine their heavenly father saying in their earthly father's voice i told you you were no good i told you you were no good you're nothing but a failure you'll always be a failure i'm sick and tired of looking at you get out of my sight or was it a look of disappointment that jesus gave peter that day there are many Christians who, when they fail, think that God, they have let God down. They imagine the voice of God whispering in their ears something to the effect, I, I can't believe you did that. I expected more from you. You have really disappointed me. Of course, this produces an incredible amount of guilt and shame, which causes them to run and hide, much like Adam ran from God and hid himself from God when he blew it in the Garden of Eden. Maybe Jesus gave Peter a look of sadness. Often we feel that our failures cause God to look at us with the kind of sad look that one would give a person, you know, who is a lost cause. That the Lord is looking at us, shaking his head, like we would look at some sad, pathetic loser who no matter how many chances they are given, always blow it and never amount to anything. Of course, that causes a person to feel like it's no use trying anymore. 
I mean, I'm never going to amount to anything. I'm just going to give up. I can't, I can't ever walk with God in my Christian life. I, I try, but I keep falling into the same old habits or sins. You know, we get saved. Maybe eight, eight out of the ten big sins in your life fall by the wayside almost immediately. But there's always a couple, always a few that hangs on. And you hate those sins. You don't want to live in those sins any longer. You're, you're a Christian now. You love the Lord. But no matter how hard you try, and that's the problem, no matter how hard you try, you can't seem to have victory. And after you fail a number of times, and I'm talking sometimes years, you're so defeated, you're so discouraged, that you just want to give up. You feel God's written you off, and you're just going to give up. Let me ask you, what kind of look do you think Jesus gave Peter? I'll warn you, the look you think Jesus gave Peter in light of his failure reveals how you think Jesus looks at you when you fail as a Christian. Mark it down. That's why I think it's important we go through this, okay? What look do you think Jesus gave Peter that day? Because whatever look you think Jesus gave Peter when he failed is the look you think Jesus looks at you with when you fail as a Christian. Let me tell you what I believe about the way Jesus looked at Peter that day. First of all, what I don't think was the look. How I don't think Jesus looked at Peter. First of all, I don't believe that Jesus looked at Peter with a look of anger. You know, the Bible is very clear that God's anger is reserved for those who are living in rebellion. Those who refuse to repent for their sins. Not for those who try to live for the Lord but sometimes fail. Secondly, I don't believe that Jesus looked at Peter with a look of disappointment. You see, for God to be disappointed with us, it means that our actions took him by surprise, that we acted in a way he didn't expect. Now, that's ridiculous, right? God knows all things. He's omniscient. He knew every sin we were going to commit before he ever created us. This whole idea of, I've disappointed God. No, you haven't. You can't disappoint God. Because it means that God had appointed you up here. That's what the word means. God had put you way up here, but you didn't live up to his expectations. So you came down this, this far, down you know, below that. You disappointed him. I don't believe we can disappoint God. Besides that, I know that Peter's denial of Jesus didn't catch the Lord by surprise and disappointment because when Peter promised Jesus that even though these other disciples would fail him and even forsake him, that he would never do that, the Lord quickly said, Peter, before the night is out, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to have denied me three times. And I believe Jesus told Peter this not to crush Peter, but to warn him. First of all, not to put confidence in his own strength, but secondly, to prepare him for his failure. Can you imagine if Jesus hadn't softened the blow a little bit by revealing to Peter before the night was out, Peter, you're going to, I know you love me, 
And he was probably the strongest guy there in both body and spirit. But I think he was trying to soften the blow of his own of Peter's failure the next day so that he wouldn't be completely crushed, right? To soften that blow. Look, our sins never surprise or disappoint God. Grieve him, yes. Surprise him, no. Number three, I don't believe the look Jesus gave Peter that day was a look of sadness. You know, the kind of look we might give a person who you know, was a lost cause, a hopeless loser. The kind of person we often feel like for blowing it as much as we do. Which causes us to say things like, Lord, I'm hopeless. I'm never going to amount to anything as a Christian. Why don't you just give up on me? I've given up on myself. Forgetting what Paul the Apostle said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, we are all a work in progress, right? God has begun in each and every one of us. It started the moment you accepted Christ as your Savior. He began a work in us. And that work is going to be completed at the rapture. That's what Paul went on to say. When somewhere between earth and the sky where Jesus appears and calls for us, we're going to be completely transformed. We're going to have our glorified bodies. We will be perfect. The work that God began in us the moment we got saved will be completed when we get our glorified bodies at the time of the rapture. Until that time, just think of it this way, when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, at that instant, God took a stamp, stamped on your forehead, work in progress, or under construction. So every time you blow it, and you stand in front of a mirror to condemn yourself, you read... Under construction, of course, it's going to be backwards, so you got to figure that out. <laughs> Write it backward, I guess. So when you look in the mirror, you see it forward. I don't know. But we're all work in progress. Sometimes we forget that. No, and the devil gets us because he's trying to get us to evaluate how much God loves us based on how well we perform as Christians. That's, a, again, a self-defeating proposition. God's love for us is not based on how well we perform, how obedient we are. Sure, we want to be obedient to please the Lord, but his love is a constant. He so loved us before we ever got saved. So much he gave his son to die for us. His love isn't going to increase now that we're his kids. We have to remember that, okay? The devil is trying to get us to evaluate how much God loves us based on our performance. Of course, when we fail then, he can come in with the guilt and condemnation. What does that do? Like Adam, it drives us away from God. That's what the devil wants. He doesn't want you close to God. Because if you're close to God, he can't really work on you and mess you up. It's only when he can get you under the law where you're trying to earn God's love through your works or your service or your obedience, that when you fail, he can condemn you and drive you away from God because when you're away from God, then he can really work to destroy you, your family, and, and everyone around you that knows you're a Christian. You say, well, okay, pastor. Okay, what kind of look do you think Jesus gave Peter that day? Well, 
And I could be wrong, but I personally believe it was a look of loving compassion. The kind of look a parent would give a child, a little child, who is learning to walk but keeps falling. When your toddler, or not even your toddler, what is toddler, two? My little grandson has just over, just turned one month or so ago, and uh, he's just walking great now, but he was learning to walk a couple months ago, and he would get up and take a couple steps and fall down. Not once did I go over to him and say, what is wrong with you? Stop falling down. Start walking. Not once did I do that. You go over there and pick him up and encourage him, right? You take him by the little hands or her, and you're walking over them, holding their little hands, showing them what it feels like to walk, right? I was going to have you turn to Hosea chapter 11 to read verses 1 to 3 and then verse 8. You don't need to because that's what God's talking about with Israel. How that when I led Israel out of Egypt, I gave birth to this nation. And I taught them how to walk like a parent teaches a small child. I was patient. I was kind. I took them by the hands, God said. And I taught them to walk. Hosea 11, verse 8. How can I give you up, Israel? They, they strayed from God. They got into idolatry. And God is lamenting. How can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? My heart is torn within me. And my compassion overflows. This is now, they're not kids anymore. They're not a young nation. They have grown up. They ought to know better. And, and God is still pleading with them. He's not condemning them even now that they're, they should know better. He's lifting, extending his hand. Doesn't come to me. You've walked away from me. I can't give you up. I love you. Just like he says to you when you blow it. Or it says to me when I blow it. And we want to walk away because we're so filled with guilt and shame, like Peter. We want to run and hide, weep bitterly. Some of these ways that we stumble are pretty substantial. And God is extending his arms to us and saying, don't let the devil drive you from me. I don't want that, and it's not going to be good for you. Don't let the devil drive you from me. This is when you need the body of Christ. This is when you need to be in church. This is when, more than any other time, you need to be in the Word. I mean, if the Lord can forgive Israel their rebellion under law, don't you think He can forgive you your weaknesses under grace as His kids? Look, God loves you. He is not angry with you. And he is not condemning you for your failures. I know that. The word is very clear about that. Again, he knew all the times you were going to fail before he ever created you. And guess what? He still wanted you in his family. Now that's saying something. You know? I think it was, um, it was Moody who used to say tongue in cheek. I'm glad God chose me before he knew me before I was created. Because if he had waited and found out how bad I was, he wouldn't have picked me. Well, that Moody, you know, he was, he was just joking around. Sir, God knew all our sins before we were saved. The great news is he still wanted us to be one of his kids. And now that you are his child, he's not going to condemn you because you're weak and sometimes fail 
and fall in your walk with him. Paul the Apostle makes that very clear in Romans chapter 8 when he asked the rhetorical question, why would God condemn the very people he sent his son Jesus to die for, those who are now his children? And the answer, of course, is he wouldn't. But we often let the devil do it, condemn us. Look, again, God knows our weaknesses. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And guess what? He isn't putting any confidence in our strength. Turn to Psalm 103 quickly. I love Psalm 103 on this subject. It it really nails it. Let's pick it up in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. God's not putting any confidence in our strength. And we better not either. God knows that we are weak and prone to failure. He's not condemning us for our failures because, guys, listen, as his children, he actually uses those failures of ours to teach us to w- how to walk with him better in the future. You realize that? We're letting the devil condemn us for our failures. And I'm not saying that failures are wonderful. Let's all try to fail. I'm just saying when we do, it's not a lost experience if we will handle the failures properly. Not let the devil drive us from God, but... Letting the Spirit of God drive us closer to Him. But God doesn't condemn us for our failures. He knew everyone we were gonna, every time we were going to fail before He ever created us. And He uses those failures to teach us many lessons that we need to learn to help us to draw close to Him in the future. Ravi Zacharias, great apologist, is with the Lord now. Whenever he taught on this subject, he would quote this little thing I want to read to you now. He would say... I went to the throne with a trembling heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. He took my day all spoiled and blotted and gave me a new one all unspotted. And into my tired heart he cried, Do better now, my child. Let me bring this to a close with a true story. It's a true story about a little boy named William. I happen to know... William's father. And I know it's a true story because I know his dad. And uh, his dad is a pastor. And William, at the time of this story, was about seven years old. And it seems that William was a rambunctious little boy who often pushed the patience of his teachers. Well, the story goes, one Sunday while driving home from church, William, who was unusually quiet on this trip home, suddenly blurted out, Dad, is God watching me? William's father knew something was behind that question, so he asked, Why do you ask me that, William? Did someone tell you God is watching you? 
William responded in a kind of a sheepish tone. Well, my Sunday school teacher told me God is watching me. Is it true, Dad? Is God watching me? William's father probed deeper. Why did your Sunday school teacher tell you God is watching you, William? Well, because I was kind of acting up in class. But is it true, Dad? Is God really watching me? Now, this pastor was wise enough to understand that the way he answered that question had the potential to shape William's concept of God for many years to come. And so he quickly prayed for wisdom and then said to his son, Yes, William, it's true. God is watching you. He's watching you because he loves you so much he can't take his eyes off of you. And that is true for all of God's children. God is watching you. He's watching you not because he's angry with you or disappointed in you or disgusted because you fail. He's watching you because he loves you so much he can't take his eyes off of you. And like any parent, he wants what's best for you. And so he patiently keeps watching over you, protecting you and guiding you each and every day. And when you fail, and we're all going to fail, when you do fail, he stands ready to pick you up, dust you off, take you in his arms and whisper in your ears, I forgive you, child. Now draw your strength from me, and I'll teach you how to walk with me better in the future. Again, guys, remember, you and I are a work in progress, and he who has begun that work will see it all the way through to completion. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. No, we're not all that we want to be. We, we are definitely not all that we once were. So instead of focusing on what you are not yet in your walk with the Lord, focus on all that God has done in your life since you got saved. As you look back, I know I can. I'm certainly not where I want to be yet. But I look back and I'm a million miles from that person I used to. I don't even know him. And I'm sure you feel the same way. We are not all that we want to be yet, but we are not all we once were then. So God is working. Be encouraged. Draw close to your heaven, loving Heavenly Father every day for strength. And remember, 1 John 3, 20, If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Our heart may condemn us when we fail. Often it does. Why? Because I love God, and I really do want to do what's right. I, I really, my heart is tender towards God now that I'm saved. I, I really do want to honor him and obey him and walk with him and so on and so forth. So that when I do blow it, yeah, my heart condemns me. Of course, Satan loves that. And he's pushing the condemnation all he can, again, to get me to run away from God. But when our hearts condemn us as Christians, understand God knows the truth. God knows the truth. Remember that after Peter denied the Lord three times, he ran away somewhere privately, wept bitterly, and was there for three days, isolated, 
When Jesus rose from the dead, the first person Peter, the uh, Lord Jesus sought out was Peter. Now remember, this was the man who said, my love for you is greater than these because they might deny you or, and forsake you. I never will forsake you. So you remember this story. Jesus appears to Peter. And three times he asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, well, you know I do, Lord. Yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. Third time, Peter, do you love me? This time Peter was a little exasperated and said, Lord, listen, you know all things. And you know that I love you. The devil used Peter's failure to condemn him. Peter appealed to Jesus' omniscience because Peter knew that God knew his heart. God knows all of our hearts. In fact, the Bible says, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. We don't even know what's in our own hearts, but God does. He knows everything. So much so that when we fail, and we're going to fail, as John tells us, which is, was his way of comforting us when we fail as children of God, he said, our heart, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. It's John's way of saying that sometimes a child of God can be overly hard on themselves. Listen to me now. A child of God sometimes can be overly hard on themselves where they set the, the bar so high in their walk with God. They begin to have unrealistic expect, expectations in their walk with God. Expectations so high that they border on perfection. So that any sin, no matter how small and unintended becomes the justification to condemn themselves as worthless failures. I have seen it over the years. Now look, I'm not saying that small sins, quote-unquote, aren't important or they're not the issue. And that only big sins, whatever that means, we need to take seriously. Remember what Solomon said in the Song of Solomon, okay? He said, it's the little foxes that spoil the vines. What does that mean? I believe he was talking about sins. How that we often only focus on the big sins. You know, murder, uh, adultery, uh, you know, robbing banks, I guess, you know? And if I stay away from those things, they're the only things God really cares about. Little sins, little white lies and taking a pencil and a couple pencils from work or uh, a little cheating on my income tax because after all, God knows that. i got to do that a little bit to, 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 to make ends meet, you know? But he doesn't care. Those are little sins, right? They're not even sins. They're, they're white sins, which means they're not even sins at all. That's what people think. I'm not trying to minimize those sins. All sin is serious in the eyes of God, and he wants us to take all sin seriously as well. It's just that we are all like little children learning to walk. And when we fall, when we do sin, he wants us to acknowledge our sin, to confess it, repent of it, and then get up 
and start walking with him again. He does not want us to lie there and let the devil kick us and condemn us so that we never get up and try to walk with him again. I'm a worthless failure. What's the point? I keep blowing it, right? And you're going to keep blowing it until you learn some important lessons. And that is not to put your trust in yourself. But that when you do sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So don't lie there. Don't let the devil have victory over you. Confess the sin. Ask for forgiveness. Get up. And in the power of God, keep walking. Keep walking. When Peter did deny the Lord three times the next day, his failure caused him, caused Peter, who was a proud and self-confident man, to fall and to fall hard. When it happened, Peter went out and wept bitterly. You see, in his mind, he had committed an unforgivable sin. A failure so great, it had damaged his relationship with Jesus forever. Further, I'm convinced that Peter believed his ministry for the Lord was now over. All was lost. He had made the Lord a promise he didn't keep. He was now a, a hopeless failure. There's no point in going on. Who was the first person Jesus appeared to after his resurrection? Peter. What Peter didn't understand at the moment of his failure was that his greatest days of knowing the Lord and serving the Lord were yet future. Peter's failure hadn't irreparably damaged his relationship with Jesus. In fact, in many ways, it strengthened it. God had great plans for Peter. But Peter would never be the success in the kingdom of God he wound up being if he was going to put all of his strength in himself, if he was going to have all this confidence in his own strength, though these deny you, I will never deny you. The Lord had to let Peter fall and fall hard to break him if he was going to ultimately use him in ways that even Peter didn't realize at that moment God was going to use him, ways that God was going to use him in. The Lord used his failure to teach him an incredibly important lesson, one that Paul the Apostle would articulate a number of years later when he wrote his second epistle to the Corinthians Christians in Corinth. And when he said in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. Again, guys, we are all a work in progress, and in that regard, God is teaching us many lessons that will help us to grow in our walk with Jesus and in our ministry for Jesus. And one of the greatest of these lessons, and don't miss this, it's the heart of this entire message. The Lord is teaching us many lessons that will help us to draw close to him and be used by him. But without a doubt, one of the greatest, if not the greatest lesson of all he's trying to teach us is that we not put confidence in our own strength. 
that we don't, don't try to live a supernatural life, which is what the Christian life is, out of our natural abilities. It only leads to failure, and as Peter discovered, it gives the devil an opportunity to condemn us. Again, God knows that we are weak and prone to failure. He is not condemning us for our failures because as his children, he uses them to teach us how to walk with him better in the future. If you have failed God recently, and I'd be shocked if anyone here says, I haven't failed God in a long time. Um, if that's how you're feeling, please see me afterward. <laughs> but if you have failed God recently, and maybe you failed him in a very substantial way, and right now you're thinking your walk has been, or your relationship has been irreparably damaged, your ministry is over, all I can tell you is learn from your mistake. Learn from your fall. And if you do learn from it and stop making God promises you can't keep, your best days for Jesus will yet be ahead of you. I'll close with this story, true story. Years ago I had a guy in our church who had moved from California with his family. And when he was in California, he, he uh, had met this guy in his church. And uh, this guy, uh, uh, I don't know if this one brother knew it at the time, but this guy had a problem with pornography. Now, in those days, you couldn't just dial it up on the Internet. Internet wasn't invented yet. Al Gore hadn't done that yet. So <laughs> you wanted to look at pornography. You had to go into an adult bookstore somewhere, usually in the seedy part of town. Well, this guy happened to own a jacket, the same jacket I owned back then. It was kind of a glossy black, almost like a windbreaker, and it had uh, white stripes on, the, on the, uh, the wristband there. I had the exact same jacket, and I know it because on the back it was written Jesus. That's all. Just Jesus in, in like a white script. And as he was describing this jacket this guy wore, I said, I, I got one of those. Well, what happened after church one day, this guy forgot he was wearing that jacket. And he was driving by, and he saw an adult bookstore, and so he pulled the car into the parking lot, went in there, stayed for about an hour. As he was walking out the door, he realized, he remembered he was wearing his Jesus jacket. He was crushed. That he had brought Jesus, the name of Jesus, into a place like that. It crushed him, and God used it to break him of his addiction to pornography. Sometimes we have to fall. It's the only way we're going to be broken. And until we're broken, we're not going to put confidence in God's strength. We'll keep making God promises we can't keep. And we mean well. We do mean well. We're only a week or so or a couple weeks from first of the year. New Year's resolutions, right? Can I encourage you not to make any New Year's resolutions? Get on your face before God and say, Lord, I want to do so much better in my walk with you this year, but I can't. I'm not going to make you a promise. But I ask you, 
to fill me more with your spirit. Give me greater grace, Lord, to walk in your strength. I'm going to turn my life over to you this year in a way I maybe haven't done before this year. I, I, I give my life to you again. I lay myself on the altar of sacrifice. And by your grace, Lord, I want to be used by you, and I want to know you in a way I haven't until this moment. If that's your heart, then I guarantee you your best days of walking with and working for Jesus are yet ahead. May God give us the grace to have the best year of our lives because when we're weak, we are strong. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your great love. <laughs> give us grace, Lord, to stop trying to earn it. It's free. Give us grace to just accept it to thank you for it and to stop trying to earn it but rejoice in the fact that you love us unconditionally uh, and there's nothing we can do that will cause you to love us more. And because of the great love you have for us, Lord, by your grace, we want to walk with you and honor you and serve you. We just thank you, Lord, and ask that in this coming year, in fact, before this coming year, Give us grace to start drawing closer and closer to you. That you would fill us afresh with your spirit. And that, Lord, truly our greatest days of walking with you and serving you are yet future. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.